0: This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Monique Harris-Pixato, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Chantel Oliver, Valerie Jacobson, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, Marianne Fox, Bella, Jan Elise Cannon, and
1: Jessica Smith.
0: Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Now, I know that we are both big fans of great pedagogy. In action. <laughs> Watching really excellent teachers do their work well. Oh, yeah. Is one of my favorite things. Just as a teacher, I'm always looking for ways to do that little nudge that can open the door and let them see the possibilities for their own academic life, maybe. <laughs> Small acts of empowerment and faith maybe, mm-hmm. in your students can really change somebody's life, and I-, I love seeing those play out. Yeah? This episode begins with one of those. Cool. It begins with an undergraduate research project that ends up becoming a life work. <laughs> Classic. And also in this story, we are headed somewhere that we have never been before. Huh? On the podcast and in real life. Ooh, we are headed to Cuba. Oh, cool. Fantastic. I'm Olivia Mickle, And
2: I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of.
1: Never got a chance to ask her why she extended this honor to me, but Professor Sonia Raquel May, who's no longer with us, pulled me out of her Latin American literature seminar. She had won a faculty fellowship to study Afro-Cuban poets in Cuba. And she invited me to come as a research assistant. I was a junior in college. She said, I'll take you with me, but you have to work on your own project. I'm gonna teach you how to research. You're gonna assist me and I'm gonna assist you. And just a beautiful model that I've tried to emulate in my career as, as much as possible. I knew I wanted to do something on women in revolution because I had become very interested in the women that were fighting with the Zapatistas in Southern Mexico at that time. So this is in the mid nineties. So I thought, okay, how do I take that interest in women and rebellion and revolution and and take it to Cuba, which uh, there's an obvious connection there, Cuba being so famous for its revolution. And stumbled onto, through some just general reading, the name Celia Sanchez Mandule.
0: That voice you were just hearing belongs to Dr. Tiffany Sipiel.
1: I am professor of history and director of the Honors College at Auburn University, and my research specialty is Cuba.
0: And her new book, Celia sanchez Manduli: The Life and Legacy of a Cuban Revolutionary, just came out last year from UNC Press, and it is magnificent. I will admit, I knew almost nothing about the Cuban Revolution, really a month ago. And I had mm-hmm. definitely never heard of Celia Sanchez.
1: The fact that we didn't we don't know very much about her isn't just because it wasn't some project to sort of edit her out of the history. That's partially it. But it's also that she was extremely private. She never gave interviews. She did not like having her photograph taken. One of the letters of hers that I read stated Essentially, as soon as this revolution is over, I'm changing my name. And so it presented from the very beginning back in the 90s, and I stuck with this project for more than 20 years. It took some interesting methodological tools and tricks to study someone who was a woman, at, at me being an American woman studying a Cuban woman, so there's diplomatic tensions and interesting things there, and then somebody who was so incredibly private and guarded about her, her personal histories.
0: So, let's meet Celia Sanchez. She was born in a rural area of Cuba in 1920,
1: her father was a physician and also sort of amateur historian, which is where she got her love for, for history. So she grew up in this small town, and I think that's an important part of her story. She was not a big city girl. And I think a lot of what she was able to accomplish um, in her career was because there was the sense of her being, you know, of the, of the people. She had a big family, lots of kids. Her mother died when she was very young and that played a, a huge role, as you can imagine, in her whole life, but her father really became the center of her life as a result. In her young life, again, because of, largely because of the influence of her father, I should say, he was a physician in this small town, but he worked a lot with the workers at the local sugar factory, and...
0: And he's seeing up close the effects of the unfair and unhealthy labor conditions happening hmm. there. And so he quickly becomes drawn into the
1: labor movement, into workers' rights. And she was drawn into socialism and political activism through his engagement with those those issues and those populations. And we see her in the early 50s, uh, late 40s, early 50s, finding her way into grassroots kinds of mobilizations against the Cuban government. And what I think she learned in that period of her t- of her life was that she was very effective at bringing people together, connecting people, networking. She's really involved in these
0: grassroots movements against the dictatorship that is in place in her country. She is a central figure in everything that's happening in her area. Hm. And as the Cuban Revolution, as the July 26th movement is bubbling up and mm. looking for allies in this eastern mountain area where she lives, her name comes up naturally. People are recommending her as someone that would be good to get on your side. Hmm. The revolution did not make her, it needed her. Ah. She was fully complete as hmm. an activist and an organizer already herself and then mm-hmm. gets invited in. So historian, yeah. do you want to give us a uh, 45 seconds of context <laughs> of on the Cuban revolution? revolution?
2: <laughs> well, what I, what comes to mind when I'm thinking about the time period in which this revolution is bubbling up and she is being uh, sought out was that in hindsight, we always conflate the socialist movement and communism. But in the 40s, there was this global movement. You can probably picture the icon of that political movement, Workers of the World Unite. And it was really mm. this movement saying, hey, we're all workers. We're all being stomped on by the man. All we have to do is wake up and realize that and we can flip this social system so that we don't have this power-hungry oppressors stomping on everybody. So, I'd imagine if she's in part of that labor movement, she wants to unite the workers of the world. And that manifests as communist parties in different countries all across mm. the world where it takes hold. Most of the places where it took hold were far away from America. Mm. But Cuba is this hot spot that is, you know, a stone's throw from. America. Yeah. Right in our backyard. Yeah. And the Cold War is heating up to a kind of ridiculous degree. And there's Cuba just right over there, which looks offensively like it's going to swing toward Russia, which is halfway across the globe instead of swinging toward America. It was (laughs) unthinkable. But I think in the moment when in whatever country you're living in, things would have been really complicated, and you could be Mm. like wanting to advocate for the working class, but there are a lot of different ways to advocate for the working class, and things kind of boil down to one extreme political option versus another extreme political option. Mm. And so you get people like Castro who (laughs) rise to the top and just kind of swing the pendulum really far the other direction, but it's kind of a, you know, a choice between the lesser of two evils, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, when you're operating under this really awful, oppressive dictatorship, Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to see that this is not okay. We can't keep going like this, and we have to try something else. Right.
2: Like, whatever means will finally work to get the dictator out.
0: Yeah, anyone who will remove this man, Mm -hmm. I'm on his side. Right. So basically there is the first big push of the July 26th movement, Castro's big revolutionary army, and they are trying to decide where they're going to start. Where's a good place for them to gather and launch this revolution from? And they've chosen this mountainous area where Celia Sanchez is from because it's difficult to get to. And it's difficult for, of course, the Army to come and attack you, you can sort of establish your stronghold and and mm-hmm. branch out from there.
2: I can picture the famous photographs.
0: This also means it's really difficult to get your revolutionary army there and to keep things running. <laughs> and And, as Tiffany Sipiel dug into this history, it became increasingly clear that the person who made all of this happen the one who kept things running who made sure everyone here in the mountains had food and medicine and horses and guns and Mm. cattle everything is celia sanchez
1: Huh. moving supplies up and down from the the sort of lowlands up into the mountains to support the troops medicine money we have records of how involved she was with just getting the money that was needed to to support this this revolution.
0: She is managing the revolution.
2: Wow, what a job!
0: Which, yeah, I mean, it's it's not sexy, and it's not something that we tend to put people on posters for. Mm-hmm. But it absolutely would never have worked if she hadn't been spectacularly competent at managing all of this, at running this, at strategy, at supply chain, as we're learning right now, (laughs) how one little breakdown somewhere and everyone goes hungry. And she is making sure that all of this runs. And she's the reason that the revolution can even get started, let alone be successful. Hmm. And this was one aspect of being able to read Celia Sanchez's letters that was so crucial for Tiffany Sipiel to really understand who she was and how she actually felt about all of this. The official patriotic narrative says that she never questioned, she was 100% sure, she never had a single doubt. And it's just simply not true.
1: You know, she talked about some of the things that she witnessed and saw. And while she believed in the revolution, she hated the loss of life. And so you see, I think it's amazing to see her grappling with the hard parts, the loss that came with that.
0: Hmm. Reckoning with it, with herself, you know?
2: Yeah. I feel the same way. I could join a million revolutions based on ideology,
0: but (laughs) not if they're
2: violent. Not if if it means war. That's a whole different thing.
0: Yeah, it's it's a much more complicated ethical matter matter to confront. It's especially striking here because she wasn't just organizing. Just organizing. She isn't just watching the revolution from a distance. She was the first woman to fire a shot in the revolution. She is actively fighting. She Mm. is actively involved in this violence. And seeing on the most personal level how this affects people, what this looks like. Dang. She eventually founded an all-woman brigade Yes. who became so feared huh? that they became Fidel Castro's personal security force. Mm. <laughs> These are the people who will keep him safe. And it was all women. See, that's... I might join the communists
2: had I lived back then because they were so not sexist like 1950s America. I mean, yeah. Russia, the Philippines, Cuba, and China, too. just Mao's saying, China, yeah. Gender is irrelevant.
0: Come Women out up here. Come the sky. Yeah.
2: And yeah. join in the fight of the working class.
0: This might be your, your chance to be a person. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and
2: do anything. Maybe you're looking for experiences for your kids this holiday season instead of stuff. Girls Can Crate delivers a monthly package that teaches them
0: about a real woman who changed the world. Every crate features a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEM activities and more. And use the code HERNAME,
2: all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription that you order. It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children.
0: <laughs> and they would make an amazing gift. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. Crate, and when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. I think sometimes it's easy to get cynical about historical figures. Easy for (laughs) you. Nobody was who they said they were. Nobody really (laughs) believed anything. Easy for me. Yeah, this year. I used to be the biggest wild-eyed optimist. Persist, and you will come through it to out the
2: other side (laughs) and understand the humanity in everyone.
0: Well, that's the problem is the humanity in everyone. (laughs) That's the beauty but Celia Sanchez is better than most people. And she truly was who she said she was. <laughs> I think maybe
2: it's rooted in, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, but the historian aims to understand, not to judge. And maybe hmm. your cynicism is coming from your, like, moral revulsion at people's actions and that you want them to be the heroes in your head but they're just flawed humans.
0: Yeah. I want one unproblematic hero. Yeah. That's all I ask for. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Yeah. Just one. That's why you're a literature
2: person, and not a
0: historian. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But Celia Sanchez, pretty close. She at least was uh ideologically pure <laughs> she really <laughs> believed the things that she said she believed and she lived the things that she expected other people to live mm, well was, i like that yeah yeah i mean whether you agree with what she believed or not i have to respect walking the, the walk yeah yeah i want people to believe what they believe <laughs> She was dedicated and committed on a level that is kind of astonishing, actually.
1: She was in the mountains fighting, received word that her father had taken a turn for the worse, health-wise. And there are these beautiful I I cried reading them letters. It's the last letter she wrote him. I know I think she knew it was the last letter. It was one of the longest that she wrote. And she was describing to him all the accomplishments that they'd had. And she said, you'd be so proud of the work we're doing up here. You wouldn't believe the hospital and the schools. And we've got a a factory making uniforms. And we've even got our own gun that we manufacture. And she's listing these things out. And she said, "And, and I can't come home. And I know you'll understand. I know that I'm doing what you would want me to do. So it was her goodbye letter to her father, and it was so beautiful.
0: It's the best window into who this woman really is. Mm. She suddenly comes into focus for me reading this. I think yeah. oh, this woman really, truly meant what she was saying.
2: And it sounds like self respect, I think, earning yeah. your own respect. Having that kind of inner sovereignty, that's what I admire in any historical character.
1: Yeah. He ended up passing away. She didn't go to the funeral.
0: There are government agents waiting for her at the funeral, and she knows that that will be true. They're just waiting to arrest her. They think she'll come. So she sends 26th of July flowers. So flowers symbolizing the revolution (laughs) to his funeral in her place.
1: That was the most she could do, right? She couldn't be there in person.
0: Here's maybe my favorite thing about her. She did not want to be remembered. Hey! Just like you! (laughs) She didn't care if everyone forgot about her forever yeah what she cared about was the work Mm. she did not document her life she did not document her Mm. thoughts and feelings about this stuff for posterity and this is especially striking because she is the reason why we know pretty much anything that we know about the Cuban Revolution, about the inner workings of the battles and the characters and the strategy Mm. and the who, what, when, where, how, why of all of it. She was the historian of the Cuban Revolution while it was happening around her.
1: The archive where her papers are stored was actually her project. She created that archive from like a book bag that she carried during the revolution when they were fighting in the mountains, she would recopy the memos that were passed between the different leaders because she had this, she was a historian, her father was a historian. He was a doctor, but he was a historian. And she had the good sense to recognize we're living in this historic moment. These memos, these little bits of paper are gonna matter. And so she would recopy them I saw the letters of her writing to Che, for example, and saying, send me all your stuff. I don't care how insignificant you think it is. Send me everything. I'm going to recopy it. And this entire archive that she established in the 60s is built from that, just simply walking around with a book bag. And there were moments when I was working with her papers that I just had to sit back and go, we wouldn't even have this if she hadn't carried the records and preserved the records that then someone like myself was able to come along later. And piece together how did they do this thing? How did these young, really truly young people build a revolution, sustain a revolution, and ultimately become the government? Right? It was, it's it's amazing that she had the foresight to do that.
0: Oh my gosh! The entire archive of the Cuban Revolution. Wow! She is running an archive in real time. Well, that makes sense. She know, cares about the
2: cause. And she wants that to be understood.
0: All of this she understood is so important. And I have to be the one to keep it because none of these men are interested at all in documenting what's happening. I am going to be the only one that will do this. And she keeps on her body the Archive of the Revolution. Archival research comes with plenty of hurdles built in, often. (laughs) (laughs) You are digging through unimaginable piles of stuff, or trying to locate information that has never been properly catalogued, or you're stuck in one tiny little room for 16 hours a day for weeks. All kinds of things that can make it difficult, even though it's glorious. Mm Mm-hmm. I think working in an entirely different culture adds an extra layer. And when the person that you are trying to research went out of their way to remove themselves from the narrative, that makes it a bit harder. Nah. And then, of course, the fact that everyone she is talking to is constantly asking her if she actually works for the CIA. Is this really a spy mission? Why does she want this information? What is she actually up to? Mm. You know, that that's something that I've never encountered.
1: <laughs> Most of the time the, the response was, who are you and what makes you think that you are worthy of studying this woman who's kind of like, you know, the Ava Peron of Cuba in, in many ways.
0: No one will allow her access to anything. Wow. Well, I would,
2: if I was Cuban, I would be suspicious too. Oh, sure. I right. like, yeah. yeah, you come in here with a weird request about one of our own revolutionaries. Yeah. I'm not going to just lay it all out there for you. Right. Yeah. This not knowing what we now know about the CIA's actions. Yeah, exactly.
0: Why, why is this woman <laughs> asking about one of our national yeah. heroines? No. We're not letting yeah. you anywhere
1: near these papers. Mm-mm. Yeah. No. I abandoned the project. I didn't abandon it. I decided not to make it the focus of my dissertation. It was my master's
0: thesis, my undergraduate
1: thesis, and my master's thesis, simply because I didn't think I could actually write a full monograph on Celia with the bits and pieces that of stuff that I, that I had. And I was hoping at some point I would be given access to her personal papers. So it was kind of like repeated requests that, I think I there were like 300 requests to get access to her paper's phone calls and I would go by the archive in Havana and it was always like, no way, not happening. But only five Americans ever have even worked in the archive where her papers and Fidel Castro's papers and Che Guevara's papers are housed.
2: Dang, (laughs) that's wild. I mean, it's wild to begin with that you've heard those two male names, never heard of her.
0: Ain't that always the way? <laughs> and, and absolutely in this case, it becomes really obvious how ridiculous that is. Boo.
1: I did end up coming back to the book and writing it from all the bits and pieces of things that I had gathered over the years. And I was sad that I hadn't gotten access to her paper still, but my editor at um, UNC Press was like, the book is fine, it's good, it's good. We're gonna do it. The story needs to be told. You've done a great job here with what's available. And I thought to myself, you know, I have put so many years and decades at that point of work into it. I'm gonna send one last email to the, at that time, new, newly appointed director of the archives. I took a totally different tone I've been working on this story since I was basically a teenager. And I just said, you know, the book is finished and it's coming out. But what would make the difference is if I could have her voice. This is my last request. And I hit send and I had a glass of wine and my husband was like, you did it, right? No one could say you didn't try as hard as someone possibly could.
0: And 48 hours later, she got an email from the archive
1: saying yes. 49 hours later, I had a plane ticket to Havana.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got to go and hold and read the letters of this incredibly important, incredibly private woman, like her her letters back and forth to Fidel Castro and Che Guevara.
0: And what a wild experience. There are probably only two other people in the world who have ever handled these letters that she's reading. Celia Sanchez mm. and the Archivist. Uh.
1: It just brought it all to life and I got to learn more about I mean, all the things you would want to know about someone, right? How she felt about her, she was super close to her dad. I knew that, but I'd never read a letter between her and her father and her siblings and the the really detailed notes of how she executed this crazy, complicated plan to support the troops when they were in the mountains fighting, which we knew she played a central role, but it's not until you see the, the kind of spreadsheets in essence of cattle being moved and medicine and personnel, and you realize what an incredible strategist uh, and executor of a vision she was. And it was just a, a really amazing, serendipitous end to the story to get to have that access. It's a good reflection of her life, but also how she's remembered It's the telling of the story that that people tell about her.
0: She is a hero to many people, a celebrated figure. She's a villain to many other people. She has been lionized and demonized Mm -hmm. and never humanized. And this book humanizes her again. Hmm.
2: Was she there for, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the CIA's everything. attempted assassination? She was there for all of it? All of it. And not just wow. there.
0: In the most inner of inner circles. Because oh she my very gosh. quickly becomes indispensable. Castro ah. sees, and I'm sure recognizes that none of this could happen without her, that she is the one keeping everything moving. Mm-hmm. He trusts her implicitly. And not just her, he trusts her judgment, what's important, what matters, and Mm -hmm. what should we be doing. And so she has kind of a free hand to do whatever she thinks is important.
1: Castro, Fidel Castro, absolutely did trust her. I think it helped with the speed with which she could move, because I don't think he hovered over her shoulder. I think he had seen what she was capable of and
0: largely because of Celia Sanchez's excellence at all of these important things the revolution wins mm. and Castro is now in charge oh man probably
2: not an apt metaphor to bring up George Washington but isn't he the one who said that the the revolution was won by bread or something like implying oh, that oh yeah you win a revolution not really so much but with with an army but with the supplies and the yeah. management and the admin, everything behind it. So, I am fully prepared to give her the credit. Yeah, I mean, if your the guns, revolution. guns don't
0: arrive, or mm-hmm. everyone in your entire camp is sick because the medicine isn't there, yeah, you don't have a revolution. Yeah,
2: let's hand um. her a complete credit. She yes. wouldn't like that. It's
0: all course. her. No, she would hate it. It was a team effort. Yes. <laughs> of which she was a small part. So, Fidel Castro is now president. And Celia Sanchez is made secretary to the president. Okay. And herein starts <laughs> a vast historical misunderstanding. When we read secretary to the president, uh-huh. we think she's bringing coffee and taking yeah. dictation no this is like a cabinet secretary yeah she is number in- one man <laughs> yeah she is running enormous projects she is building infrastructure on a level that you wouldn't believe she's rebuilding the nation after this revolution
1: i mean if you if you drive around cuba you drive around havana it's it, it's truly you could go on a celia Sanchez tour This building, this building, this institution, this archive.
0: She is committed to the project of making life better. She is arguably the most powerful, most important woman in Cuba at this point. And the pace of her productivity is astounding. Everything she did was at light speed.
1: It's just truly astounding. But people say she didn't really sleep. Castro apparently didn't really sleep either. I don't know, this is part of the lore, right? She didn't really sleep, she hardly ate, she smoked cigarettes and drank coffee, and just, you know, just this output that that was so tremendous.
0: But also not just big, fancy infrastructure, impressive projects. She is 100% committed to improving life for individuals. And after the government forms, she is inundated with thousands of letters Hmm. from people who need help.
1: They weren't directing those to Castro or to Che. They were sending them to her. And it was for things as simple as, like, I have a sick child who needs medicine. We need a car. We can't get to work. Members of my family have left the United States and have gotten essentially caught there and can't get back in. Can you help? It was just so amazing to read the range of issues and to see her comments. She would often write the comments like, here's how to solve this, here's what we can do, call this person, see if we can get some money to them. And you can see her mapping out, right? And calling on those networks of support. And and the fact that, just the fact that she took the time with all that she was doing to attend to those daily needs and countless interviews, people mentioned that that she got medicine to my aunt or she got a doctor to my cousin, right? When they were sick, you know, part of, a big part of how people remember her. People said the lines outside her office just wrapped around the block.
2: Wow. That speaks volumes.
0: She's spending a large part of every day on the small problems of little people mm. who can't possibly matter mm. to her politically at all. Oh but my they gosh. matter to her because she cares about people. I love her so much just for that. She was a genuinely good, good person. Person. <laughs> See? Who they do actually exist. cared about people. See? <laughs> it's a nice reminder once in a while <laughs> that not all the good people in the world live in my house, because sometimes that's what it feels like. <laughs> not your house. My house. <laughs> yes. Well, all right. Our houses. And it's not true, it turns out. In the late 1970s, she started
1: getting sick. But as... Is- often the case, it was brushed off as a fungus in her lungs. Like he didn't say the C word, right? You don't tell people, plus she was so private. And so you can see in the photos in the last years of her life that she was getting more and more frail. She was always a slender person, but getting more and more frail. But, you know, knowing the chronology of her illness and lining that up against those accomplishments, still in those final years, the number of buildings and building projects that she was involved in Lennon Park which is this massive park on the outskirts of Havana that's still um, very much used by by families and 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 tourists that was that was a huge undertaking and so realizing that she was doing all that while very sick is kind of humbling (laughs) it's like wow she was really a force to be to be reckoned with
0: But it was lung cancer, which Mm -hmm. is also what her father died from and many members of her family died from. And, you know, given that she is famously subsisting on coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. She died in 1980 from lung cancer. One of the most important women in Cuban history. Wow. And villain or heroine, she is everywhere in Cuba. She's on billboard stamps, statues. She is Iconic, which probably makes her unhappy is she she's seen as sort of the
2: embodiment of the dream of the Cuban Revolution and a world yeah. that was better for everyone and that would yeah. help the little guy I mean she really tried to live that dream absolutely
0: yeah she she, she really did live did. the dream. She really did live the dream of Cuba in every possible way that she could. And she made a lot of the dream possible. The good parts that happened are largely because of her. Hmm. Hospitals, schools, parks, services for the community. This was her. This was her life's work. Hmm. She would hate that Tiffany Sipiel has written this book probably she did not want to be singled out and celebrated yeah
2: so would she be mad that this episode is happening nevertheless
0: here we are doing this <laughs> podcast
1: i've wrestled with and sometimes feel semi-guilty it's like a weird feeling because i'm doing the very thing she explicitly said she didn't want to happen <laughs> and it's an important story to tell <laughs>
0: I kind of jokingly suggested to Tiffany Sipiel that maybe it was Celia herself blocking the access. She did not want (laughs) you to
1: do this. I have often felt the same thing. And I'm like, thank you, Celia, for finally relenting, right, and letting me in. It's like you tried to block me as long as you could and I wasn't going away. and, And going back to what you said, if she intervened and made it possible, I have to believe that there were some of those delicious details about who she was and what mattered to her outside the the realm of the political maybe those parts she would be in favor of us of us knowing
0: it would be very in character for her to say absolutely not but maybe once it became clear the book was happening yeah
2: yes. then she's like okay we'll set the record straight fine
0: <laughs> yeah if you're gonna talk about me at least get it right
1: My secret hope is, and and I think your podcast is an amazing avenue to try to get her name and the story out. So I'd love if somebody would do a documentary or a movie, or even if it was something about the Cuban revolution, but she was a real central figure in it. She was positioned within the story in the way she should be, would just be amazing because people think about the Cuban revolution, they think about bearded men. In fact,
0: there's the famous song praising the army, the bearded men.
2: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Cuban revolution is berets and cigars. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it is in popular iconography. Maybe at least, even if she wouldn't like us telling her story, that Her story is emblematic of the spirit of the revolution that she believed in so much. And that whole spirit got spun into a really weird anti-communist narrative. Maybe now I hope she can realize that we need a person on which to pin Hmm. this narrative. To bring it to life and make it real and, and make it human. And I bet for the cause, she would do it. She would step up and say, "Okay, <laughs> you can tell my story."
0: <laughs> yeah, I've I've thought about that. That like reframing the story this way makes sense to me now because none of this could have happened without the people like Celia making things happen in the background, mm-hmm. running everything, mm-hmm. doing the work, and Believing prioritizing the work. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer in the end. By telling this story, the story she didn't want told about herself, we are proving that she was right, that the work is mm-hmm. what matters, Yeah. and that the people whose lives you make better are what's important,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that as a culture, we need to start looking beyond the big egos and the big personalities and see the work that's happening behind the scenes to make these things actually happen. Yeah.
2: So maybe the I book... think maybe even beyond the ideologies, or mm. you know, our boiled-down versions of the ideologies, look at the work that's actually being done, and the yeah. spirit in which people are doing things, rather than just the label that has been slapped on. Yeah, me.
0: yeah. Because her cause was not, in the end, communism. Her cause yeah. was people. People. Her cause was. Mm. We have to make the world better for people. People's lives should be better than they are. Mm. Amen, Celia. Amen. Huge thanks to Tiffany Sipiel. On our website, you can find links, photographs, and more information about Celia Sanchez, as well as links to Dr. Sipiel's books. Music for this episode was provided by Jimmy Fontanez, Mark Nelson, Quintes Morera, Doug Maxwell, Renee Touze and his orchestra, and Daniel Henderson and his big band. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can help spread the word by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a really important way to help us get more women's history out into the world.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week.
0: Our theme song
2: was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith.
0: What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.